0: Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you today thankful for the beauty of the day we've enjoyed, the warmth of the sun. We thank you that you make provision for our lives that we might have such joy and pleasure in living. We thank you that you give us the comfort in this world about us and provide for our needs. We know that every good thing comes from you. And we know it comes from you because you're true to your promises and you do not turn against us despite our sins. We are grateful to you for the mercy that you demonstrate, even in the natural phenomena that's ours to enjoy. But above all, we thank you for the best of gifts, your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come into this world to be a mediator for us to you, who has come into this world to lay down his life as a perfect atoning sacrifice, that our sins might be covered, that you might no longer see them and take them into account, that we have a right standing before you, and indeed be adopted into your family as sons and daughters of the Most High God. we thank you for these blessings, Father, and ask that you would change our hearts, make our gratitude visible before men, that we would not simply praise you with our lips, but you might receive through our obedient lives and our desire to glorify you in all things the praise that is worthy of your name. We come to you tonight in the name of Jesus and ask that his spirit, might enlighten us and guide us as we study your word, we'd walk in paths of righteousness before you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: amen.
0: We're going to finish Hebrews the 8th chapter this evening, and so I'd like to begin by reading, it's a short chapter, just the 13 verses of Hebrews 8. We'll summarize the first five and continue our study from last time. Now, in the things which we are saying, the chief point is this. We have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is necessary that this high priest also have somewhat to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. seeing there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve that which is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, even as Moses is warned of God when he is about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern that was showed thee in the mouth. But now hath he obtained a ministry the more excellent, by so much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which hath been enacted upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then would no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and on their heart also will I write them. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his fellow citizen, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and their sins will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant. He hath made the first old. But that which is becoming old and waxeth aged is nigh unto vanishing away. And thus far God's word. I trust you remember from our last study that in the first five verses of this chapter, the author makes the point that we have a high priest (coughs) that lives up to the description of chapter 7. In particular, you remember 7, verse 26. For such a high priest was appropriate for us, holy, guileless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens who doesn't need to offer sacrifice for his own sins on a daily basis, but could once for all offer himself up for us. Chapter 8 tells us that here's the main point. That's the kind of high priest we actually have. Jesus is that kind of high priest who not only finished the redemptive work given to him, but sat down at the right hand of God, becoming a king, a priest and a king, to minister for his people. And then in verse 2, and amplified in verse 5, the point is made that Jesus ministers in a tabernacle, in a tent. that's unlike the earthly one in which the Aaronic priest, of the Levitical order, ministered. Jesus did not go into a shadow or a replica. He did not go into the representation of God's presence among his people. He went into the very presence of God. He went into the true tabernacle which was, in fact, the model, the exemplar, for the tabernacle on earth. (coughs) Verse 3 indicates that it was um, necessary for a priest to have something to offer. If you don't have gifts or sacrifices, you can't be a priest. And so it was necessary for Jesus to have something to offer as well. What did Jesus offer?
1: That's
0: right. He was not only priest, he was sacrificial victim at one and the same time. And not on earth, but in heaven above, right before the presence of God. And yet, verse 4 says if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all because he wouldn't have met the requirement of the Levitical order. And now we come to verse 6 which opens with the categorical remark that he, that is Jesus, has now obtained a ministry the more excellent by so much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which hath been enacted upon better promises. The ministry that Jesus has obtained, what is that ministry? Specifically, what is that particular calling? That is being referred to in verse 6, this ministry that Jesus obtained. Doug? The mediating function is necessary to this, but there is a more specific office that he holds. It's even more specific than that.
1: High priest,
0: High priest exactly. He has received a ministry the more excellent. And see, if you're writing to Hebrews... Jewish people, how can there be anything more excellent than the high priesthood? Jesus has received a priesthood, a high priesthood, which is even above that of Aaron, even above that which is the supreme religious cultic office among God's people. And although the author is, uh, well, the word the author uses is translated, obtained this ministry... The word could better be translated, he attained this ministry. You see, it's true of the Aaronic priests of the old covenant order that they kind of fell into their position, or if you will, it fell to them to be priests. That language is actually used in the Bible. You see, in terms of uh, the family you're born in and the uh, place you have in the family and the rotation of that family in the uh, temple service, the high priest would have this fall to him. Jesus also has obtained an office. But the stress of the verb here is that of an accomplishment. Jesus has attained to the office. And which of the Old Covenant priests could say that? That they actually came to their office by accomplishment. Only Jesus has that credited to his account. That he attained as an accomplishment a high priestly function. The more excellent Well, if the old ministry and the old covenant are contrasted to the new with the language of more excellent, what conclusion should we draw about the old covenant priestly ministry? Was it wretched? Was it demonic? Was it something horrible? Was it something displeasing to God? Insufficient would be a very good word. Why that word instead of the ones I've been suggesting? Or better, you tell me, why am I suggesting those words at all? Would anybody dare say that the Old Covenant, that the law of the Old Covenant was somehow terrible and ungodly and contrary to God's will? I'm not now asking why there is this contrast. I'm trying to pick up what is being um, taught by the author through this contrast is he telling us here you have this ugly dark terrible thing called the old covenant and then you have this new good godly god pleasing thing the new thank you it is but the new is more excellent and see one's not bad and the other good one's good and the other's better that really should change our attitude toward the old covenant Instead of looking at the Old Covenant as something just horrible, you know, the very suggestion that we might want to do something or follow the principles of the Old Covenant is met by dispensationalists today with horror. You know, as uh, Doug told you in a recent sermon, they kind of have this knee-jerk reaction to that as legalism, as something that's bondage. We don't want that. (coughs) But our author says, It had its excellence, and it had its time, but it was insufficient. There is something more excellent that has now come, the ministry of Jesus. And why is the high priestly ministry of Jesus more excellent? He's given one reason already in the first five verses, and I want you to repeat it for me. What is the reason why Jesus' ministry is more excellent, Stacey?
1: Well,
0: it is eternal, and we're not giving full credit for that answer tonight. <laughs> He's enthroned
1: in heaven.
0: He is enthroned in heaven, but the enthroning figure is not the one you want right now.
2: Because it doesn't require a daily sacrifice.
0: Well, that too is... I mean, what you're saying, all good answers, they're glancing off the right window. It's more excellent because where does he minister, this high priest? In the, the heavenly tabernacle before the Father. That's right. I mean, if you had your choice, what, what would you want, the shadow or the substance? Do you want, you want the high priest who goes before the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle, or do you want the Son of God who goes right before the Father in heaven? That's a more excellent high priestly mediation, obviously. But then there's a second reason that the author now turns to, and that's because he is ministering in the carrying out of a better covenant. A better ministry, a better covenant in terms of which to minister. But now hath he attained a ministry the more excellent by so much as he is the mediator of a better covenant which hath been enacted upon better promises. Jesus is here now called the mediator of the covenant. If you look at chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 24, the same language is used. I'd like to put it in context. This is a beautiful passage. Verse 18 says, For you are not come unto a mount... <coughs> it's going to be a tough evening, folks. I'll just give my one... I'm sorry about that, and I'm going to go on. For you have not come unto a mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, and unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that no word more should be spoken unto them, for they could not endure that which was enjoined. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so fearful was the appearance that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. The author says, you haven't come to something so minor as that. Look all that grandeur and all that fear and all that drama. He says, no, 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 you haven't come to that. You're coming to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable host of angels, and to the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the Judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and above all the climax of it, and to Jesus, Jesus the Mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. We've come to Jesus the Mediator of the new covenant. Who was the Mediator of the old covenant? Well, that's what you would expect in context. In, in that sense, the answer is a good one, although I think it's wrong. Maybe
1: Moses?
0: Yes. Moses is the mediator. How do you know that?
1: Because
0: the word came to him, and he interpreted for the people. Give this girl an A-plus for a that. That's exactly right. Turn to Galatians 3.19. What then is the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come, to whom the promise hath been made. And it was ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator. And who is the mediator who received the law? Moses, Mo- Moses exactly. So the law was mediated through Moses. The gospel is mediated through Jesus Christ. The old covenant typified in the Mosaic Order was mediated by Moses himself, not not Aaron, but Moses who received the revelation from God by which Aaron was to function as priest. But Jesus is mediator of the covenant, its terms. He is the promulgator, the lawgiver of uh, representing God as well as the one who lives according to those terms. He is both Moses and Aaron in the imagery of this passage. Then John 1:17. I think, supports that contrast between (coughs) Moses and Jesus as mediators. (coughs) John 1, the 17th verse we read, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. (coughs) Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless. In your Bibles, do you have the word covenant italicized? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, someone remind us all what that means when an English translation italicizes the word. It means emphasize it, right?
1: <laughs>
0: no, what's an italicized word in an English Bible translation? Indicate? Yeah. It's been added, not in the original. Now, I don't have any objection to the word being put in here. I mean, you have but to supply it to they're suggesting. Well, it's more than just implied. It's taken for granted. But sometimes we learn something from the literary style itself. Notice that the author, if you were reading this in, in Greek, it would come out something like, well, I won't pronounce the Greek. I'll say it would sound like in English. <laughs> for if that first had been faultless. If you go down and look at verse 13, in that he saith anew, he hath made the first old. See, it's covenantal throughout. He assumes it so much, he just starts calling the first, the new, and drawing the contrast that way. And our translators put in the word so we don't lose track, and uh, that's probably good. But I want you to see that he's really laying stress upon first and new as ways of designating these covenants. Now, if that first had been faultless, then would no place have been sought for a second. Feel the common sense, Doug? Isn't this logic the sort of thing that you would expect everybody to understand? When you've reached perfection, why do you look for something else, right? If you had a faultless covenant, why would God go bother talking about another one? same logic is found in chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if there was perfection through the Levitical priesthood, or under it after the people received the law, what further need was there? that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be reckoned after the order of Aaron. The author looks at just that language of um, Psalm 110:1, 1, the order of Melchizedek, and he says that proves something very important. If God spoke of another order of priesthood after he already had ordained a Levitical priest, then he was saying there's something wrong with the Levitical priesthood. And now he uses the same logic over again here. He says, for if that first had been faultless, what need would there be for him to speak of another covenant? No second covenant's called for if you've got a perfect first one. So what was the fault in the first covenant?
1: We're going to need to really
0: put on our thinking caps.
1: It, it didn't have the completed Christ in the old
0: what you're saying is true. It didn't have Christ in substance. Or I think I interpret your words the completed Christ. It had Christ by way of anticipation and foreshadow. It didn't
1: impart righteousness.
0: It didn't impart righteousness. We're going to see a number of things that it didn't do. But I want you to notice that isn't what the author says. He summarizes it differently. What was the fault with the first covenant? It was
2: uh, oh, the uh, Israel
0: strayed from it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The fault with the covenant was not the provisions of the covenant itself. The fault was the people to whom it came. Can you see that in the text?
1: <coughs> in, in.
0: Verse 8. For finding fault with them. Now some people have difficulty with this because they really want to lay on a, a bad negative connotation to the first covenant. And so what they do is they translate verse 8, for finding fault he saith to them. Okay? And the advantage of that you see is that the dative case in Greek accommodates both with and to. So you could have finding fault with them. Or you could say, he saith to them. And so you're going to get translators and uh, interpreters who do different things there. We will see, however, that in context, the translation that should be preferred, Well, this goes contrary to my seminary professor who taught this passage, I think the context definitely supports he found fault with them. If you'll look through the quotation from Jeremiah, maybe you'll find something that supports my interpretation. Boy, you guys are so quick. Read the part that proves my point. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, personally. For this is the covenant that I will make for the house when it goes down. And in the new covenant, it will. Exactly right. Jeremiah is saying what? They didn't continue in the covenant. Was there something wrong with the covenant? No. But it didn't take care of the problem because they didn't do what God wanted them to do. So he found fault with them, (coughs) is the way I translate that. Now I'm going (coughs) to come back and study the New Covenant pericope of Jeremiah 31 all by itself tonight. So let's... Pericope, that bothered you when I said that, didn't it, Scott? (laughs) Okay, a unit of teaching that stands by itself. Um, this is one of the longest single quotations in the New Testament. If you look at your Bibles, well, some of you will be able to. See if you can, mind this as well. Do you have the part from Jeremiah set off in a, in a way that indicates what's being quoted? A block quotation, okay. Do you see how long that is? It goes from 8B all the way down through 12. So what I'm going to do is, since we've just finished AA, i I'm going to jump down to 13. I'm going to talk about what the author of Hebrews says. Then we're going to go back and study the Jeremiah quotation and see what we learn from it in itself. So down to 13. Having quoted Jeremiah, the author says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Who said a new covenant? Who's the he? Why not Jeremiah? And that Jeremiah says this.
2: Jeremiah was the word God, from God, as he instructed.
0: Well, he was, but that isn't... I mean, he couldn't be saying, Jeremiah said this. Jeremiah did. And he wouldn't be denying that God said it as well. But there's a reason why the he must be God in this verse. Well, her 8, because he
3: finds fault with him. And he had of the so the he seems to be God.
0: Yeah, well Jeremiah found fault with them, but here it's clear that it's God who found fault. But look at how verse 13 continues: "In that He saith in New Covenant, He hath made the first old." Jeremiah make the first covenant old? Did Jeremiah have that ability, that prerogative? Absolutely not. He was not the covenant Lord. He was not the sovereign who determined the terms and the uh, the length of the covenant when it would and would not apply. And so, when God said, anew, he hath made the first one old. The mere designation of another covenant as being new. That one word, new, carries this much theological weight. Sometimes people will ask um, whether the Jews in the Old Testament should have understood, are Jews just with the Old Testament, without the preaching of the Apostles, should have known what we now understand in New Testament theology? And the answer is yes, they should have. They did not have the advantage of having the picture all colored in and the substance before them, but the outline of New Testament theology is in the Old. And one of the best proofs of that is that the author says that one word, new, That one word was enough to have taught them this theology, that the old was not sufficient. God would not have spoken of another one if the first had been faultless, as we've already seen. So the designation of another covenant as new carried already in Jeremiah's day the implication that God was looking upon the first covenant as what? Obsolete. In Jesus' day, when the Jewish leaders were antagonistic to his claims and to the bringing in of the new age. You see how far they were from understanding the law they thought they were defending? In Jeremiah's day, it was obsolete. In Jeremiah's day, the author says, that which is becoming old and waxing aged is nigh unto vanishing away. The impending abolition of the Mosaic covenant was already inherent in the covenant in Jeremiah's day, it was destined to be discarded. Jeremiah knew it, and they should have known it. Now, the interpretation I've made of verse 13 suggests that at the end, when we read, that which waxes old is near unto vanishing away, I suggest that's from Jeremiah's perspective. Others will tell you that's from the author's perspective. That is, the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews says, that this is old and near unto vanishing away. Um, I can live with that interpretation, and sometimes I fall into it, frankly, because it does sound that way. I do think it's preferable, given the thrust of the whole verse, though, that he's saying that Jeremiah would have seen already that the old covenant was near to passing away. But what if I'm wrong? What if the near to passing away means from the perspective of the author of Hebrews? What's he referring to? Hasn't the the covenant already passed away? When Jesus gave his life and rose from the dead, didn't he enact the new covenant? Well, then why does the author of Hebrews, on this second interpretation, anyway, why would he say that it's near to passing away when, in fact, it's now gone? (coughs) Well, you see, that's what I suggested, and I think that's the best interpretation, that he's really referring to Jeremiah's perspective. It was near to passing away already in Jeremiah's day. But now what if it means from the author of Hebrew's perspective, this old covenant is then near into passing away? Yeah. Exactly. Was the old covenant already passed away? In theological fact? In
1: function, no. Well, no,
0: in function, yes.
1: What
0: what did you have of the old covenant? The outward shell. Right. The heart and substance wasn't there, but the, he- <coughs> the Hebrews continued to follow just the outward form and shell. And the author then might be referring to the fact that God is going to put a decisive end even to the outward shell of Judaism when in AD 70 the Romans crushed Jerusalem and uh, destroyed the temple. In which case, and that would be the last, of course, of the Jewish sacrifices, even in their reckoning. So that is a possible interpretation. You can see it that way. It's near unto passing away because God is about ready to destroy all vestiges of that covenant now. However, I, I still prefer the idea that he's speaking from the perspective of the prophet who he has just quoted. Okay, now let's go back and look at Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant. Is Jeremiah the only place in the Old Testament we read of the new covenant? Okay, Willie. Give me one more place where we read of the new covenant. Trick question. question. I'll get you either way.
2: I know there are other
3: other facts. Okay, then sorry.
0: Nope. Doesn't mention the new covenant.
1: Isaiah.
0: (laughs) 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 Oh yeah, that's a big prophecy. Does anyone else call it the new covenant? No.
1: New heart. No.
0: Does anyone else call it the New Covenant? No. No. No one else calls
1: it the New Covenant. Good. Does that mean it's not mentioned anywhere
0: else in the Old Testament? No. The New Covenant is just not called the New Covenant in other passages. Let's look at a few real quickly. Ezekiel 37, verses 15 to 28. Maybe somebody can help me. My voice is giving out anyway. Marilyn, would you read that for me? Ezekiel 37, 15-28. And um, Terry, Ezekiel 34, verse 25. Uh, Jim, Isaiah 55, 1-5. And Scott, Isaiah 61, 1-9. And then some other references in Jeremiah uh, itself. Willie, Jeremiah 32 verses 27 to 44. You might scan that and summarize it for us. That's a long passage. And then um, (coughs) that's Jeremiah 32, verses 27 to 44. Just kind of sight-read it if you want, and uh, you can give us your synopsis in a minute. And then Jeremiah 50, verses 4 and 5. And then we're going to go back to Ezekiel 37, Doug. Verses 12, 14, and 26 in particular. 12, 14, and 26.
3: You forgot.
0: That would be twenty. Uh, Ezekiel 34, 25 for the second
3: person.
0: It's beginning to sound like my high school class. All right, Marilyn. Ezekiel 37, 15 to 28.
3: Yes. The word of the Lord came again to you, saying, And you, son of Mary, take for yourself one stick and light on it, for Judah and Canaan, the son of his companion. Then take another stick and light on it, for Joseph the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companion. Then join them for yourself one to another into one step, and they may become one in your hand. But when the hand of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by this? Say to them, Thus they can work not. Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribe of Israel, his companion, and I will put them with it, and the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be uh, one in my hand. Then the stick on which you write will be in your hand before your eyes. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the son of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation their home on the mountain of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And there will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer follow themselves with their idols, or with their trustful things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all those holy places in which they have sinned, and will claim them. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my wildernesses, and keep my statutes, and exalt and they shall live in the land uh, that I gave to Jacob my servant, through which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they, and their sons, and their sons' sons forever. And David my servant shall be with them forever. And I will make covenant peace with them. There will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them in my covenant, and I will set my fortune on in the midst forever. My throne of also will be with them, and I will be their God, and, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that all will be sanctified with, with you.
0: In that century, it in Ezekiel talks about a day in which Israel and Judah will now be brought back together. To understand that, remember the history of the Jews. How, after the golden <coughs> age of David and Solomon, they split into two kingdoms, two hostile kingdoms.
1: <coughs>
0: they had two sanctuaries, uh, two priesthoods, two kings. It was a really wretched situation. And Ezekiel says the day is coming when God's going to bring these two back together. But in that day, he's going to do other things. He's going to cleanse them and teach them to walk in his statutes. And they'll have a king over them, David, his servant, who will be a prince forever. And it's beautiful, especially understanding it from the New Covenant perspective. You can see how the unification of God's people is tied up with King David, Jesus, who comes to cleanse us from our sins. And in verse 26, he says that this will be a covenant of peace and an everlasting covenant because I will set my sanctuary in their midst. Now, from Ezekiel's perspective, the setting of the sanctuary in their midst was a reestablishing of the Levitical order, a reestablishing of the tabernacle or temple in Jerusalem. But we see an even greater fulfillment, of course, that when Jesus comes, he sets the tabernacle of God in their midst by doing what? By making God's people his tabernacle. For we, Paul tells us, right? We're the temple of the living God. For the Holy Spirit lives in us. And um, my point is, this great day of salvation and harmony um, and obedience to God's law is called an everlasting covenant of peace. Ezekiel 34, <clears throat> 25.
3: And I will make with
0: them a the covenant of peace, and will cause evil beasts to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. The day comes when the the figure of speech is used. Uh, hostile beasts will no longer threaten us. Does that remind you of any other prophecies of the Old Testament, often used by premillennialists to talk about the millennial age? Uh...
1: Yeah. The lion and the lamb down there.
0: Exactly. There will be no more hostility in the natural order, which is a figure of speech of peace, isn't it? And God calls this day that is coming, the day in which he establishes a covenant of peace with his people. It's not called the New Covenant, but it's referring to the same theological order that we're studying. Isaiah 55, 1-5. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, Come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money,
2: come and <coughs> buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me, here, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David." Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee.
0: The Holy One of Israel will come, and for that reason, because God will show favor to you, the nations will want to run into you not run into you like cars run into each other. They will want to be absorbed by you. They want to become part of the kingdom of God. And that will be an everlasting covenant that God makes. Isaiah 61,
2: 1-9. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto me. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the testimony of the Lord in the day of vengeance of our God. Comfort all the more. To point it to them that mourn design, to give unto them beauty for ashes, and oil for joy of mourning, and garments of praise to the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called the trees of righteousness, the timing of the Lord, that might be, that he might be glorified. And they shall build up the old ways, they shall rise up the former desolation. and they shall repair the waste, such waste cities, in desolation of many generations. And a stranger shall stand and these your flock, and the sons of the alien shall be your followers and your binder. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord, and they shall call you the ministers of our God. You shall be of the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall you boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall have double, and for your confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. For I the Lord love judgment, I hate robbers for burnt offerings. And I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, and they that are deceived, shall the word flesh.
0: There's an amazing day of grace and blessing coming, Isaiah says. A day in which God will make an everlasting covenant with you. Do we have any reason to believe that um, Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in the New Testament? Doug, can you think of any passage that applies it to the New Testament?
1: Luke
0: 4, and yes, Luke the one um, sermon that we know of Christ preaching in the synagogue, I mean, in terms of the actual content, Jesus asked for the Isaiah scroll to be handed to him. And he turns to this passage and reads it. and says, this day it's been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, that was dramatic. And you know, we jump for joy. We love that people of his day didn't like it. They wanted to kill him for it. Nevertheless, that everlasting covenant is fulfilled in the New Testament. And then a couple more passages in Jeremiah referring to this new covenant. Jeremiah 32, verses 27 to 44. We'll give Willie's synopsis now.
1: There's
2: three verses that pretty much summarize it. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may hear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that
0: they will not turn
1: away from me. Yeah.
0: Everlasting covenant. And notice what God promises just in the verses Willie has chosen. He says, this is a covenant where I will not turn away from them. Did God turn away from Israel? Yes, in fact, the quotation from Jeremiah tells you that. I did not regard them, God said, because they did not continue in my covenant. They turned away from me, so I turned away from them. The curse of the covenant came upon them. But the day is coming when I will make an everlasting covenant, where they will not turn away from me, and I will not turn away from them. Jeremiah 50, verses 4 and
1: 5.
3: In those days, and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well. And they will go along, with me as they go, and it will be the Lord their God. They will speak. And they will ask for a way to Zion, turning their faces in its direction. And they will come and they may join themselves for the Lord in everlasting covenant that will
0: not be forgotten. And so the Gentiles will be incorporated as well. So we have a lot of information about the new covenant. That's the answer to the question that I began with. There's a lot of information in the Old Testament prophets about this new covenant. It may not be called the New Covenant. But it's called other things that indicate a, a day of blessing and grace is coming where David himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the uh, the Holy One of Israel will appear. The Gentiles will be incorporated and God's people will be one. Their sins will be forgotten. They won't turn from God and won't turn from, there, from them and it will be an everlasting covenant of peace. And what will make this covenant so different? The resurrectional... I made that word up. The resurrectional <laughs> work of the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is going to come and do a work of resurrection might. Ezekiel, in particular, tells us this in that beautiful passage, Ezekiel 37. I've asked Doug if he'd read verses 12, 14, and 26 to kind of get to the heart of it.
3: Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel.
2: Verse 14, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall place you in your land. Then you shall know that I, am the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, thanks the Lord. Verse 26,
1: mm-hmm.
2: moreover I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and set my sanctuary, sanctuary in the midst of them
1: forevermore.
0: What will bring about the covenant of peace? the resurrection work of the Holy Spirit of God who will lead us not only to have new life but to walk in God's statues. According to the prophecy, the valley of dead bones which is defiled because of death will become a holy place unto God because there where there was nothing but death and dry bones, God's Spirit will do what? He'll bring new life. I'll tell you I, I wish we could go on and on, I'm, I'm appalled at how I've let the time get away from us. These prophecies are just beautiful, not just for their literary uh, figures of speech, which are marvelous in themselves, but all the more beautiful for the theology that this teaches us. The Jews should have known when their salvation arrived. You know, and that's why, you know, godly Anna is remembered. That's why Simeon in the temple is remembered, because they were looking for the consolation of Israel. They read the prophets and they knew this day was coming and they believed it against all hope. And we look back on it now and we say it was all there. It's so beautiful too. Jeremiah 31 then must be seen in the context of this prophetic hope of a new day of restoration, harmony, full salvation, the work of the Spirit, bringing of new life in obedience to God's commands, what we would all call the new covenant. Let's look at... You can, Be open to Jeremiah 31 if you wish. I'm following Hebrews 8. The quotation is pretty much verbatim. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The days will come. In light of everything else we've read, that really carries meaning. Days are coming. There's an anticipated age of blessedness that's going to arrive. And the beauty of that, just that one sentence, is that Jeremiah spoke that to a people that God said, I must curse them through you. Jeremiah, I want you to tell my people that I will no longer tolerate their sin. They've broken the covenant, and they must be punished. That's why Jeremiah is considered, you know, the the despairing prophet. After all, we not only have the prophecy of Jeremiah, we have what other book written by him? Lamentations, exactly. And in the midst of that, Jeremiah says, but a new age is coming. Things are going to be different. And in that day, God says, I will make a new covenant. Emphasize, I will make. God is the sovereign transactor of the covenant. This is not mutually negotiated. God's people don't come and say, look, let's see if we can work out the terms a little better. God says, I will make the covenant. Isn't that always the case? When God enters into a covenant with man, He doesn't do it on a par with man as a negotiated arrangement. God imposes the covenant. I will make the covenant. He is the initiator. He is the one who shows grace in this relationship. And he says he will make the covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. But in Jeremiah's day, the house of Israel and Judah were divided. The very fact that he could speak of the covenant being made with both of them indicated it would be a day of harmony, an everlasting covenant of peace as it was called elsewhere in our reading. But where does the reconciliation of Judah and Israel take place? Does it take place in Palestine sometime during the millennial age, thousands of years after the coming of Christ? Where are Judah and Israel reconciled? Where is their harmony among the one people of God? But well, where is the new covenant fulfilled? Turn to Luke 22, verse 20. Amy, would you read that? Is that Luke 22, verse Luke 22, 20. Luke Likewise, he also took the
1: cup after the cup This cup is the new
0: covenant
1: in my blood, which is shown to you.
0: When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said this cup is the new covenant. Is the everlasting covenant of peace, the new covenant, something for the millennial age then, as dispensationalists tell us? Not at all. The new covenant was instituted by Jesus in his own death, and that's why the Lord's Supper celebrates the new covenant. (coughs) But who's the Lord's Supper for? Just Jews? What do you think? We just serve the Lord's Supper for the Jews today? No, we serve the Lord's Supper to Christ's people. They're the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. And therefore, the house of Israel and Judah addressed by Jeremiah turns out to be the church of Jesus Christ. Now this completely <coughs> blows the dispensational system of biblical interpretation to smithereens. Because the dispensationalists insist that God has two plans, one for Israel, one for the church. One is earthly, one is heavenly. One is legalistic, one is gracious, and on and on and on. But the point is, there must be this absolute distinction maintained between Israel and the church. Did the author of Hebrews honor that distinction? Did Jesus honor that distinction? No, the church to whom this book is written, with whom Jesus makes the new covenant in his blood, the church is Israel and Judah. That's how Israel and Judah are united. They're brought together in Christ. And when they are united, as the prophet said, the Gentiles will come into you as well. It's, okay. it's just a, when you see it in that light, the Old Testament makes sense. It doesn't make sense when you try to read it in a dispensational fashion. Well, I'm belaboring these points. Let me hurry along. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them forth out of the land of Egypt. The difference is going to be between the covenant that was made at Sinai when I led them out of Egypt, remember, and the covenant that we enjoy now. This contrast will be between the Mosaic covenant at the time of the Exodus, and the covenant made in Jesus Christ that Jeremiah prophesied of. And what happened in the old covenant? They continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord. The result of covenant breaking. It's terrible. God says, and I don't heed you. I do not hear your prayers. I do not care. Take that. Sinners are so foolish when they think they are, you know, just going to ignore God. God says, I ignore you. They broke my covenant, and I would not regard them. But this, verse 10 says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days. The heart of the covenant relationship is expressed in verse 10. I will be their God, they will be my people. That's repeated throughout the Bible. I had a number of passages we're not going to look them up but you'll find it in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy throughout the prophets I will be a God to them they will be my chosen people and what is new about this covenant verse 10 begins it this is it this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days this is the new one that is coming here's the difference the distinction and three things need to be noted about this new covenant one I will put my laws in their mind and on their heart, I will write it. The law of God will be internalized because out of the heart are the issues of life. And because the law is written upon the heart, then they will keep it. Now, good Old Testament students will ask, wasn't the law written upon the heart in the Old Testament? Well, David said that it was. So what's the difference? The Old Testament only enjoyed these blessings by way of anticipation in shadow form because the Old Testament did not enjoy any of these blessings in their actual accomplishment. B.B. Warfield has the best analogy that I've seen in all my reading on the relationship between the covenants. Warfield said the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament must be likened to the atoning work of the priest in the Old Testament. Was there atonement in the Old Testament? Sure there was, but it was shadow form. He looked forward to what? The atoning work of Christ. Likewise, the full, outbreaking, and bursting forth of the power of the Spirit is not seen until Christ has made full atonement and on that basis the day of Pentecost. And so, yes, there was atoning work in the Old Testament. Yes, there was a work of the Spirit. But they are both, you see, um limited in contrast to the reality that is coming. They are both shadowy in contrast to the substance that will be ours when Christ comes. And that day there will be real power to keep the law. Um, Because of time, I'm not going to belabor this, but let me ask you something. When you find someone who claims to be a Christian and despises the law of God, you have found yourself a hypocrite. I know those are harsh words, and they're categorically stated, but they are true. When someone who claims the name of Christ truly hates the law of God, he is not a Christian. Now, on what basis would I make that statement? This right here. God said in the New Covenant, I'll write the law upon their hearts. And if the law is written upon your heart, that means you love it. It means you desire it. You're glad for it. Now, I will say immediately, so you don't misunderstand me, that many people say with their mouth something that they won't live with their life. They'll say that they don't want the law of God. Then again, they would hate the idea of a world where thieves and rapists and murderers got away with that. They don't believe that Christians should engage in blasphemy against God and so forth. So there's a lot of people who are theologically confused. But having made that qualification, I do know some, I I believe, who have demonstrated in their lives and in the consistency of their vehemence against the law of God, they hate the law of God. They hate the idea of external control of their life. And about them, we must say, they do not know the Savior. If they did, His law would be on their heart, and they'd love it. Isn't that what Paul said? I delight in the law of God after what? The inward man. It's not just that Paul goes out and he studies all the ethical systems. You can put that up on the blackboard. Here's utilitarianism, here's hedonism, and here's Marxism and here's the law of God and make that comparison and see intellectually. But Paul says, after the inward man, I love this law. David said, Grant me your law graciously. It's such a blessing to have this. I told the people to whom I was preaching last week in Brooklyn, you know, you want light from God when you belong to Him. You don't want to walk in darkness. You want His law. And you want details, too. The same way that a person who reads a cookbook wants details. You do not want just general instructions. I hate it when the cookbook says, cook until done.
1: (laughs) I want to know three hours,
0: 15 minutes at 450 degrees or whatever it is. I can't figure it out. God is good to us when He gives us details. God shows us how much He loves us. And we, after the inward man, will, will really desire that. So when you find people who just utterly detest the law and consistently follow that out, you'd better question their regeneration, whether the Spirit of God has written that law on their hearts. Gail.
2: Yeah. Um, there's a little confusion in wording here for me. Uh, when you say, what the, when the word says that the law is written on our hearts, is he really saying that we have the law here? and our heart testifies to
0: the fact that it's true. I think it's more than that. Okay. It's not just that our heart agrees with the law, it's that the law is written on our heart so we have the ability to keep it, and we have a love for it. Not simply an, an affirmation of it, but a desire for it, and in the <coughs> me, an ability to walk in it. So out of the we, heart are the issues of life. So
2: as we read it and understand that this is the law, it's being written
1: on our hearts or, or do we not need, what I'm saying, do we not need this when we already have uh, it written on
0: our heart? No, the fact that it's written on the heart makes it so that uh, we can discern the things of the Spirit that are freely given mm-hmm. to us, to use the language of 1 Corinthians 2, 14. So, I, to go back to your first question, now that I understand it better, the answer is yes. Because the law is written on my heart, when I read it in Scripture, I say, yeah, that's right. I mean I, I know that from within as well as a comparison of other things from without. But the spirit testifies to that because in my own heart I've been regenerated and the character of God has has been stamped upon my heart and that character is seen in his law. In what sense of saying a non
2: believer has the law written in his
1: heart too? No,
0: they know not the law. They
1: know what God requires.
0: They know what God requires. But John Murray's commentary on Romans is very good at this point. I would not have seen this myself. But Murray insists we shouldn't say the unbeliever has the law written on his heart. What does Paul say? What is written on the heart? The work of the law. The operation of the law, the testimony of the law is there. The difference being what? seems like a verbal quibble. No. If the law were written on their heart, they'd want to do it. They'd love it. But the condemning finger of the law has written on their heart. It's worked on them to show them they're wrong. Their conscience is accusing or excusing them.
1: So they know that... They, they know the law. Is wrong, adultery is wrong.
0: Yes. But they don't love it.
1: Right.
0: And the, so that's the difference in the image. Uh, Doug is right in his conclusion that they understand what the law requires, but it's not written on their heart in that blessed sense that we're talking about here. Terry. Wait, wait. When you're regenerated, at the moment of rebirth, the character of God is stamped there. And a love for that God, and a love for that character, and a love for His law. So
1: it's that your heart from rock, from flesh.
0: And what does Ezekiel say that means? I will give them a heart of flesh that they will walk in my statutes. Mm-hmm. That all ties together. Well, my point is more general than simply um, I mean, not simply, but it's more general than the idea that they would ha- understand every detail of the application of God's law. My point is, if the law's been written on your heart, you don't rebel against the idea of laws, M- much less do you rebel against the specific laws that you find God revealing in the Bible. you say, "I love it." That's right. The understanding is part of the growth that we have in the spirit, progressive sanctification where what is written on the heart and what's written in the book, we come to more and more understand and apply correctly. We've only talked about one of the provisions of the new covenant. What's another one? God says, let's go down to verse 11. And they shall not teach every man his fellow citizen and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. What does it mean to know the Lord? What does that expression summarize? Covenant
3: relationship.
0: That's right. Both both of you are right. You guys have been doing your homework together, I
1: guess.
0: (laughs) It is a covenant relationship, but I think specifically it means to be saved, to know the Lord. Remember Jesus in his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, recorded in John the 17th chapter? And this is life eternal, to know thee. Beautiful summary. All of the Christian experience is summed up in that, to know God. What Jeremiah says, the day is coming when you won't have to say to people, know the Lord. You won't have to evangelize them. Why not? Because they'll already know him. You're going to have a hard time finding somebody to evangelize. That really blows my mind because it's so easy today to find people (laughs) who need to evangelize. But the day is coming when Jeremiah says, from the least to the greatest, they're all going to know him you're not a post-millennialist, not too late. You can change your mind. Kent? <laughs>
1: Does that mean that there will be a time when everybody is a Christian?
0: Remember, we're dealing with one, figures of speech, and two, prophetic hyperbole. And so, if you took this at face value, literally, that's what it's saying, yes. However, I do believe in the same way that Jesus uses hyperbole. What that means is there's going to be such a vast outpouring of the knowledge of God, that it's as though you can't find someone to evangelize. There always will be wheat and tares, but Jeremiah says it's going to be just an overwhelming day of the knowledge of the Lord. Jeremiah, excuse me. Isaiah has a similar thing to say. His image is that of a flood, right? It says, For the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. As he denied that there's going to be some people who don't know the Lord. Well, he doesn't mean to do that. He means to give a poetic picture of the astounding success of the gospel that is coming. Well, we could talk about eschatology too, but I want to end on a climactic note here. And above all, not only will the law be written on their inward parts, not only will it be hard to find someone who doesn't know the Lord, God says, and I will be merciful to their iniquities, and their sins will I remember no more. The best part of all is that sin will finally be forgotten. I wonder if we appreciate that. The promise of the new covenant, God says, I'm not going to remember your sins. You know, he does much better at that than we do. Because we're constantly tormenting ourselves and Satan, of course, is accusing us about our sins. When we become Christians, and that's the sweetest blessing of all, God says, there's one thing I can forget. And that's what you've done. I forget your sin. I'll remember it no more. As far as the East is from the West, so far I've removed it from you. So we need not bring it up anymore to God because he says, I don't remember what you're talking about. A God who knows everything can forget this. He <coughs> can forget that I've sinned against him. <laughs>
1: verse 10 that's taken place right at his grave with the fulfilling of Christ, and then he goes on to speak of some future times, time, and then goes back to the immediate. Right. Well, I
0: would think in context, because of verse 10, we would say that God doesn't remember our sins anymore when he has written his law upon our heart. And when does that happen? At regeneration and conversion. At the point that we become a Christian and our, our hearts are changed, God says, I've wiped out your previous record. And it's not like, you know, some computer programs wipe out things so you can go back and recover them. God says, there's no way to get back to it. I don't remember anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's the way he treats our sins. Once they are forgiven, they're forever forgotten. And well, I guess we know that because there's no way to apply it that makes sense. That says that at the time that I become a Christian, everyone else on earth becomes a Christian. He's describing things that are going to happen in the New Covenant. Here's one of the things that will happen. The Spirit will come and write the law on the heart. Here's another thing that will happen. The Spirit will make everyone know of the Lord. And here's another thing that will happen. I won't remember their sins anymore. And so it's not a matter of making all of those take place simultaneously. It's just a matter of saying, well, what do we know from Scripture as to when each one of those takes place? And we know that God grants forgiveness to us when we're converted. He <coughs> grants forgiveness daily after that. What I'm focusing on, though, is that the forgiveness God grants is a forgiveness that means he never, ever remembers
3: our sins again. James. I have a question. If not, omniscient. He obviously knows of those things, yet he is faithful and has to be faithful to his character. And so if he if he says forget these things, you've to be faithful to that character. But yet he's also omniscient. How do I do together?
0: I don't know. How do you have to work together?
3: Well I know that God knows all things and I know that he knows I know that if he wanted to he could account for any one of our sins. He he knew of our sins
0: Okay, so he has the ability to remember.
3: Right. But he chooses to forget.
0: But he chooses not to use the information. God could bring it all into memory. But what he says is, in terms of our interpersonal relationship, it will never be brought up again. I don't bring it up to myself, and I don't bring it up to you. It's forgotten, as far as our relationship is concerned. David? When we
1: speak for the answers, we
0: like yes, when we confess our things. At conversion, all of our previous sins are forgotten, and day by day as we seek His face, He forgets our um, continuing sins. That's so hard for us to get into our hearts, because we don't forgive ourselves. But God forgives us in a way that's almost too good for words. Gail? Um,
1: The
2: answer to the question in another way, I know you mentioned before, that God has bound Himself to His covenant, and that that's part of His covenant, that He will not remember our sins, so, therefore, He will
0: keep us word. Right. He promises not to make use of that information, and He never breaks such a promise. So, in a sense, the prophets are trying to tell us something that goes beyond human ability, to categorize and put all together. You know, we have a way of thinking of God as a human being, you know? He has it mentally, but then he doesn't put it into use, he doesn't verbalize it, he doesn't remember it, and that sort of thing. But what more can the prophets do? I mean, God has to list to us, as Calvin said, who will understand what he really is like. I mean, he he's so majestic. Go out here and look at the stars tonight, you know. Remember, the God who made the vast universe, and knows every hair on your head is the God who's talking to you. I mean, he's got a talking baby talk to us. The part of the baby talk is this beautiful imagery that we have. God says, I don't remember your sins anymore. In your language, what what it would mean for you, He says, I don't remember it. That's salvation. Well, I had more that I wanted to talk about tonight in terms of the new covenant. Maybe we'll pick that up at the beginning of our next lesson. If I somehow manage to go over time. What do you think? Can we get an alarm clock? Yeah. <laughs> you no. Know, no. You've had. But I wonder sometimes if you aren't just too nice, you put up with it. <coughs> I'd appreciate it. Um, David, do you the to prayer prepared for?